What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thanks very much. Welcome tonight to our debate, Let the Bad Guys Be, Foreign Intervention Does More Harm Than Good. For our four very distinguished speakers who have come to us from all corners of the world, from Geneva, from the United States, India, and of course Hong Kong, um, the people who are putting forth their arguments tonight, speakers for the motion, Dr. Edward Lutwak, a high-level consultant who advises the U.S. Defense Department on strategic and intelligence issues, Dr. Zhang Weiwei, professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Speakers against the motion are Miss um, Emily Lau is a directed member of uh, elected member of Hong Kong's legislature, and M J Akbar, the editorial director of India Today, and a well-known author who has most recently written about Pakistan. Welcome to you all to tonight's debate. Okay, so may I please call? The first speaker to the podium, arguing for the motion, Professor Zhang Weiwei, who has published several books on China's economic and political transformation. He was a senior English interpreter for Deng Xiaoping and other Chinese leaders in the early 1980s when Deng Xiaoping was introducing economic reforms in China. Professor Zhang, please take your place at the podium. So I'd like to uh, thank the Intelligence Squared Asia for inviting me to attend this uh, premier forum for open debate. Frankly speaking, this uh, topic is a bit tricky. As let the bad guys be is politically incorrect. Even we Chinese know that. <laughs> the issue is further complicated by how to define the bad guy. For instance, the United States perceived itself as a very good guy and punished this very bad guy called Iraq. But in the eyes of many people, given the huge human toll to the Iraqi people, the U.S. is not necessarily a good guy or in the eyes of the beholder, even a bad guy. Yet, I think it is 
empirically true that foreign intervention does more harm than good. While this issue of definition of bad guy, good guy, may remain forever controversial. And um, humanitarian intervention can indeed be a lofty ideal as gross violation of human rights should be condemned and checked if possible. We cannot stand idle. Yet, it's also true that we live in a very imperfect world. And we know enough and enough about how humanitarian intervention really operates in practice, in reality. Humanitarian intervention is usually abused. It is often used as a cover for promoting a country's self-interest. Examples are abundant in this regard, which can go back to the time of colonial empires. So many interventions, wars, killings, were carried out in the name of humanitarian intervention. Actually, Japan's occupation of Manchuria in the 1930s were proclaimed to be humanitarian intervention. We are even today not yet entirely breaking away from this kind of dismal record of foreign intervention, which is often characterized by high-minded rhetoric as a cover for expanding major powers' self-interests. Second, intervention is almost always applied selectively, and double standards are the norm. For instance, Western-style democracy was imposed from outside on Iraq through missiles, through wars, but not on Somalia, which actually the United Nations authorized a humanitarian intervention. But the United States withdrew its troops after a few troops were killed. And some even argue, perhaps with a valid point, why the United States is less interested in Somalia? Because there is no oil. It's a bit cynical, but it could be true. And uh, number three, most modern interventions are led by major Western powers, especially the United States. And such interventions are often cloaked in the rhetoric about promoting democracy and human rights. But the track record of the United States, or the West in general, is less than convincing, at least to people like me, to many Chinese. How come most of the dictators we know in the past, and even today, from the Somoza family of Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua, to Pinochet of Chile, to Saddam Hussein of Iraq, to Muslim Mubarak of Egypt, were all once close friends and allies of the United States. Number four, despite rhetoric of humanitarian intervention, the end result of such intervention often ends in humanitarian disasters. No better example to illustrate this than Iraq war launched by George W. Bush in the name of promoting democracy and human rights. The war has caused, as you know, immense suffering to the local people, 
even a conservative estimate would put death toll of civilians at over 100,000 and millions of widows and orphans left over from the war. Even in the case of Libya, I checked the statistics before the NATO intervention. 400 people were killed. After NATO intervention, 50,000 were dead. And um, as you know, Libya is a very small country, 6 million people, slightly less than Hong Kong. And NATO's war obviously abused the UN resolution, which authorized this uh, no-fly zone for protecting civilians. But it was a stretch to mean you know, regime change and uh, uh, political assassinations and more. I think this is perhaps one major reason behind China's veto on the draft resolution uh, concerning uh, Syria uh, yesterday. Uh, number five and last point, after intervention, especially after so-called regime change, no country is seriously committed to nation building of this country, which is almost always messy and even more bloody, as we are witnessing today what's unfolding in Iraq, in Congo, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Libya, and more. No long-term commitment. Intervening powers simply walk away and leave the country often in tatters and people in misery. Given this dismal record of foreign intervention in modern era, we may have to reconsider the whole issue of this so-called humanitarian intervention. To my mind, history is the best teacher. Let's look at European history. The two worst times for Europe were perhaps the 17th century's 30 years' war and the first half of the last century when the two world wars broke out. In the first case, this religious fervor, this fanaticism of the faithful, be Catholics, be Protestants, other believers fought against each other. One minute, Professor Tom. Okay. And the destruction of the war led to this whole system of Westphalia, which established peace based on sovereign nation states. And then the Second World War started with Nazi Germany's occupation of parts of Czechoslovakia in the name of humanitarian intervention. So I think history offers a lot of lessons. It's the destruction of the Second World War produced this United Nations system, the UN Charter, which established state sovereignty, and the use of force is only authorized by self-defense or by UN Security Council, which is by no means a perfect system. It has many defects, loopholes, and problems, and we should engage in uh, its reform. But on the other hand, perhaps it's also true, it's by far the least bad system for mankind. So I think we should draw some lesson uh, from history so as to avoid you know, the repetition of the old history 
prior to the birth of the United Nations. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Professor Zhang. Arguing against the motion, let the bad guys be foreign intervention does more harm than good, is our second speaker, Emily Lau. Emily's well-known to Hong Kongers as an outspoken advocate of democracy. She's vice chair of the Democratic Party and has been a member of LegCo since 1991. Emily's never been shy to speak up in favor of democracy, even when that meant taking on the Chinese government. In fact, she's been so outspoken, Beijing has banned her from traveling to the mainland for almost 20 years. Emily, please take your place at the podium. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here taking part in the debate this evening amidst the devastating humanitarian crisis which is unfolding in Syria. Last Saturday... Russia and China vetoed a UN Security Council resolution which condemned the Syrian government's deadly crackdown on the protesters and backed the Arab League's plan to call on President Assad to begin transfer of power. The veto drew furious responses from many countries. President Obama accused the Assad regime of murdering citizens. Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, said, Faced with a neutered Security Council, we have to redouble our efforts outside the United Nations with those allies and partners who support the Syrian people's right to have a better future. I hope that will include many of us in this room. Tunisia announced it would expel the Syrian ambassador and withdraw recognition of the Assad regime. Angry Syrians stormed their embassies and consulates in Berlin, London, Istanbul, Athens, Canberra, Cairo, and Kuwait City. Several hundred people were killed in the city of Homs last week as the Security Council prepared to vote on the resolution. Since the uprising broke out in March last year, more than 6,000 Syrians have lost their lives. Thus, if we put today's motion in this context, can we still argue that we should let the bad guys be? Let the people in the Assad regime continue to kill their their own people because foreign intervention does more harm than good. As diplomats in the UN bickered, Syrians in homes cried out for foreign intervention because they fear many more Syrians would lose their lives their country may descend into civil war. Russia and China opposed the Security Council resolution because they saw it as a potential violation of Syria's sovereignty and a license for regime change like what happened in Libya last year. The two governments probably fear a repeat performance in their own countries. The question of humanitarian intervention versus sovereignty was raised by Mr. Kofi Annan shortly after he became Secretary General of the UN in the last century. Speaking at an annual dinner of the United Nations Association, Mr. Annan said it was time for the international community to put 
the peoples of the world ahead of the governments of the world. He was challenging the sacred principle of sovereignty. In 2005, the United Nations adopted an initiative called the Responsibility to Protect, R2P. This consists of a set of principles based on the idea that sovereignty is not a privilege but a responsibility. R2P focuses on preventing and halting four crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. An important pillar of R2P is that a state has a responsibility to protect its people from mass atrocities. If it fails, the international community has a responsibility to intervene through coercive measures such as economic sanctions. Military intervention is considered a last resort. The notion that sovereignty resides in the head of state has long ago given way to the recognition that sovereignty rests in a nation's people. The scope of sovereignty was further narrowed in the last century as many laws and conventions were adopted to protect human rights. With the number of electoral democracies increasing, the right to democratic governance has become the centerpiece of human rights laws, and the principle of the people's inalienable human rights lies at the core of the humanitarian intervention theory. From the bloodletting in Syria, I now move to a more hopeful situation in Burma or Myanmar. Over the last two decades, various interventions by way of embargoes, diplomatic isolation, and other means against the military junta, they have resulted in the release of charismatic leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other political prisoners. Last Friday, I attended a charity gala premiere of The Lady, organized by Amnesty International Hong Kong. The film is based on the life story of the iconic human rights defender and Nobel laureate who was put under house arrest for 15 years by the junta. Aung San Suu Kyi's courage, determination and dignified approach has won the admiration and support of many people in the international community and I'm sure of many of you in this room. And many of us responded to her cause for humanitarian intervention in order to set the Burmese people free. Although the promise of democracy has not yet been realized, recent changes in Burma, including the upcoming elections, release of political prisoners, and more freedom of the, for the media, are evidence that an illegitimate and oppressive regime can be effectively undercut by foreign interventions. Finally, let us take a look at the situation in China, which is most disconcerting. As China is emerging as the fastest growing economy in the world, the leadership feels deeply insecure and is afraid of its own citizens. In March last year, Beijing announced a whopping 14% increase in the budget for domestic security. This means 95 billion US dollars would be spent on law and order items. The Chinese official said this expenditure is for stability protection. It was the second time that outlay on internal security surpassed the defense budget. 
The huge expenditure was seen as a warning against the call for adjustment revolution. Protests inspired by the uprisings in North America and Middle East and the increasing number of demonstrations by Chinese people against corruption and maladministration. But it is also a sign that the crackdown on dissenting views would intensify. Ladies and gentlemen, as China emerges as a superpower, she must be reminded that the international community expects her to follow the code of civilized behavior, which is enshrined in the various international human rights covenants and conventions that Beijing Beijing has voluntarily signed and ratified. Last week, German Chancellor Angela Merkel traveled to Beijing to urge the Chinese government to help resolve the euro debt crisis. She also used the occasion, of course, to conclude some deals for German companies, but she also raised the question of human rights. For a number of years, Beijing has been engaged in human rights dialogues with many governments. This shows she accepts that the international community has a legitimate interest in human rights developments in China. This also shows that human rights violations have compelled many nations to to embrace interventionism as part of their foreign policy. Ladies and gentlemen, looking at the situation in Syria, in Burma, in China and elsewhere, where human rights violations are flagrant, one must conclude that if governments fail to safeguard the human rights of their own people, the international community has a duty to step in. This is not meddling in the affairs of another country, but the discharge of a very, very important international responsibility. Hence, I think the motion before us should be defeated. Of course, I agree with Professor Zhang that the international politics is very complicated, and sometimes there are contradictions and double standards. But still, when we look at the atrocities around us, what choice do we make? Do we just turn a blind eye and say, let the bad guys be, because intervention will not do any good? And I think going back, if you ask the people of those countries and places where intervention has taken place, I think they are the best to tell you whether they think it's a good idea. I think the motion should be defeated. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Emily. Uh, for, for the motion, our next speaker, Edward Ledek, lives a peripatetic life, which some would agree reads much like a spy novel. Aside from advising the U.S. government on strategic and defense issues, he also uh, created a conservation cattle ranch in the Bolivian Amazon. When asked about the strategic mind in a recent interview, uh, Dr. Letwick replied, If you want peace, prepare for war. If you actively want war, disarm yourself, and then you'll get war. I should also mention that Dr. Letwick speaks eight different languages. Over to you. I am on the same side as Professor Zhang Weiwei. I like all the Weiweis, you know, our Weiwei and so on. (laughs) I am seriously on the same side, even though I do disagree with his basic premises. 
First of all, there's no difficulty whatsoever in telling the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. It's like racism. Impossible to define, but you can smell it. You just smell it. You don't need to define it. We know who the bad guys are. Secondly, I'm not impressed by the cost of removing the bad guys. The, tr the casualties in Iraq are very large. The ones in Libya are smaller. There are still thousands of people, people getting killed, babies getting killed, terrible, terrible. But if you go to Germany and Japan, which have received their democracies by having the allies, the Americans, the British, and so on, going there and taking a box out and saying, this is your democracy. And to do that, not only that, to fight them on different fronts, but also they ended up bombing and destroying their cities and killing millions of people. And you go to Germany and Japan, and you say to them, tell me, Japanese, tell me, Germans, what do you feel when you see the newsreels of the 1930s, seeing your own grandparents standing there and applauding, you know, Heil Hitler or Japan, they say, absurd horror. All the suffering, all the destruction, all the killings that went in order to live the way we do since 1945 were worth it, a hundred times worth it. So I'm not impressed by the difficulty of telling good guys and bad guys. We know who they are. I'm not impressed by the cost of bringing the bad guys down, even though that's a truly tragic cost. The reason I am on the same side, and seriously on the same side, is not even the fact that there was the 30 Days War and there was the Westphalian principle that every prince is sovereign in his own territory. And definitely I'm not impressed with the Chinese veto, which expresses the notion that every state is entitled to shoot down its own citizens in the main square of its capital city whenever it feels like it. That too doesn't impress me. The reason I'm against it is because, as was mentioned, I live in Washington, I live over the shop, I make a living as a government consultant much of the time. And I'm dealing with two enormous difficulties, the before difficulty and the after difficulty. The before difficulty, it's a matter of complexity. I mean, I remember back in 2003, those ancient days, there was the issue of putting some U.S. forces to go through Turkey into Kurdistan and Western and so on. And I saw the planning was conveying these troops into Kurdistan. It was all aborted because the Turks changed their minds and so on. But they were putting them in Kurdistan because the notion was that the Kurds were, were going to be welcoming the American invasion, whereas, of course, if they were not going to Kurdistan and going to the right into Mosul province, the people there would be against the American invasion. There were Sunni Arabs, whatever they were, and like Saddam. Well... There weren't Sunni Arabs. I said, you don't know anything about Iraq. You are entering a country you know nothing about because the people who live in this area, west of Mosul, they are Yazidis. They are the, so, the Yazidis, the bird worshippers, and they hate all the Sunnis. They hate Saddam. And when U.S. troops come there, they'll kiss you and embrace you. And I realized that the, the people planning this war did not know that the Yazidis existed. They never heard of them. They've heard of Shia, they've heard of Sunni, but they didn't even know Yazidis existed. There are half a million of them. You know, and, and this is the issue of complexity. Right now, CNN this morning or BBC this morning says there's the dictator Assad and there are the pro-democracy people on the other side. Pro-democracy, okay? 
Well, if you go, there's a, how come Assad and his wife and his brother and his sons can actually maintain control if on the, on the other side there's the whole people of Syria? Well, of course, you discover naturally that the Assads are Nusairis. As you know, the Nusairis call themselves Alawite to make it sound like they're Shia. In reality, they belong to a, a very, very, very specific and post-Muslim and heretical sect Alawi, there may be 10, 11, 12% of the population. So you're not dealing with Assad versus the Democrats. You're dealing with Assad and 12% of the population who know that if the Assad regime falls, they'll better hightail it back to the villages in northwest Syria because they will be massacred and killed if they stay in Damascus. As already, there have been killings of Alawites and so on. Then you say, how can 12% of people hold? Well, you discovered that there's about 10% Christian. The Christians have seen what happens when democracy arrives in the Arab world. When democracy arrives, Islamic regimes come to power under different names, whether Shia party, this party, that, Muslim Brotherhood, Ilkhwana, Muslim in Egypt, it could be the Salafists, whatever. You know, the moment they come to power, Christian communities under attack becomes insecure and so on. So the Christians are supporting the regime albeit their support is not necessarily very important because the people in the security forces are Alawi and, they're, and so on. Then you find there are Ismailis there. The Ismailis are seveners. They are not heretical sect, but they are Shia seveners, and they're not accepted by the Twelvers, who are the Shia of Iran and, and so on. They're not accepted by anybody, and they can live under the, the dictatorship. And you say to them, now, tell me, how can you live there? The answer is the Assad family and their clans and gangsters around them completely take away our political power. But they give us, we have personal freedom, social freedom, independence, abilities. A woman in Syria under Bashar Assad had no political power. All of it was monopolized by the dictator, but she, she decided to go shopping in the morning and buy some potatoes or some ice cream or whatever. She could decide how to dress. She wouldn't have to cover herself with a black garbage bag like you would do if the Salafi want to do in Egypt. 20% of the vote they got in Egypt. They want to cover every woman in Egypt with a black garbage bag. Okay? The Israelis don't want that. The Israelis traditionally have had quite evolved attitudes to their, their Muslim and some to their famous. They don't want that. They don't want to be like in Iraq where the surviving Christians who haven't fled Iraq the women, the Christian women, go out with headdresses because if they're recognized as Christian women, they can get insulted, attacked, pushed, and so on. In other words, the complexities of the situation explain why the news don't tell you what the news is because who are these Democrats? Yes, there are no doubt some Democrats. There are some evolved things, but the most people fighting the regime are actually Sunni Arabs acting as such. That explains you the mystery of why Saudi Arabia and Qatar, two complete dictatorships, okay, they may be royal and princely, whatever, they are dictatorships. How come they are the ones who are fighting for against the Assads? Would they ever support Democrats? No. They're Democrats in Saudi Arabia. They, they would arrest them, behead them, imprison them. Why would they side with Democrats? Answer, it's got nothing to do with pro-anti. It's Sunni. It's the Sunni Saudi, the Sunni Qataris supporting Sunni. That's why the Turkish government has recently lowered the mask as the pretended, these are personally Muslim, but we are a secular government, etc., etc., lower the mask. It is Sunni Turkish government 
so are opposing Assad on siding with the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood and so on, they would come to power. That's why the Assad family doesn't collapse the way the Ben Ali family in Tunisia, because the Ben Ali was just him, his wife, his children, his nephews, and his cousins. That's it. It was a few hundred people eating all the food of Tunisia, drinking all the wine of Tunisia. In Syria, it's thousands of people. One minute. So the remaining issue is the issue of confidence. When the British entered India in 1829, they were praised of the local ancient respectable custom that high caste Hindu uh, widows would be thrust onto the fire to burn with the husband. And the British answer, the apocryphal answer is much better than the real one, was that, in fact, it's the ancient British custom that when you throw the widow, we hang you. Okay. The problem is intervening and having no confidence. You enter Afghanistan, great. You want to impose, great. But don't feel you cannot rule Afghanistan. You have to get a restaurant owner, Karzai, and give him the presidency. Or in a case like Iraq, instead of doing it the way it was done in Britain and Japan, to take 15 years, set up a real democracy before the troops leave, you have to hand over to some Maliki from Dawa party, a guy who doesn't, the moment he wins the election, he thinks it means that he can have all of it and all of the power and nobody has anything. Because they understand elections. But they think that once you get elected, that's it. You have all the power and the other people shut up and you have no rights. So you don't have the knowledge before or the self-confidence after to do the intervention properly and to impose yourself. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Our final speaker uh, speaking against the motion is MJ Akbar. MJ Akbar is the editor-in-chief of the Sunday Guardian and editorial director of India Today. He's written eight books on India's modern history. His most recent book is titled Tinderbox, The Past and Present Future of Pakistan. He was recently quoted as saying, the idea of India is stronger than the Indian. The idea of Pakistan is weaker than the Pakistani. Please, MJ, take the platform. Podium, rather. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much for inviting me here. It's always a great relief to speak last, and even greater relief to speak after Edward, because (laughs) those parts of his speech which were intelligible... (laughs) actually indicated to me that he had switched sides. (laughs) So now that the forum has become three to one in our favor, I hope the vote will also go three to one in our favor. As we discuss this troublesome, rather odd proposition, let's keep the bad guys out. Foreign intervention may do more harm than good. I noticed that one part of the proposition is very certain. Keep the bad guys out. So all of us now know who the bad guys are. And if we start discussing who the bad guys are, we who come from nations which have been intervened rather uh, for a pretty long time, including by the British, I'm not totally sure whether the bad guy definition, how far it stretches. But I will try. Foreign intervention may do more harm than good. Unless, of course, you are in a Mubarak jail. Unless, of course, you've been sentenced to a lifetime of brutality. Unless, of course, you don't have this right to any kind of freedom. Unless, of course, all these bad guys have become despots. All these bad guys have taken over nations and turned them into family property. Then, of course, it's very comfortable to defend the status quo. When did this status quo begin? I don't want to go too far back in history because, as you know, it's an endless subject. But it begins in 1824, in 1924. In our case, it begins in 1757. So we'll have to have another debate on that. But in 1924, a nation which had been known all through history as Arabia was suddenly reconverted into Saudi Arabia. By who? By one family, but that family did not have the right to turn a nation into a piece of family real estate without the help of the British. What we are seeing today in the Arab Spring actually is a reversal of a very interesting phase in history, which is the phase of what I call silent intervention. None of these despots would have been in power not because of the Alawids, not because, I mean, the justification to keeping 10% of a population permanently in power. The right, this is not the first time that Holmes is being massacred. Holmes was massacred by Assad's father, 30,000 died in a day, and the world, of course, in that day believed that foreign intervention did more harm than good. But these dictatorships have emerged out of the period of silent intervention. What exactly is which phase of the history that are we going through? 
intervention that you see today is emerging and is becoming internationally acceptable for one important reason, because the age of empire is dead. The age of empire in which chaps in ships could come over and take over whole subcontinents belonged to an age which has been buried and put to bed. Yes, I do agree, and it's a fact of history, that nobody goes out to conquer a poor country. When India and China, the last three great non-Western empires were the Ottoman, the Mughal, and the Chinese. And in the 19th century, when these three empires were under attack, as statistics show in even 1750, between India had 24% of world manufacturing output, China had 31% of world manufacturing output. 50% of the goods produced in the world were produced in India and China. Britain at that time had 1.8. Classic definition of colonization is 1947 when the British were thrown out of India. They didn't leave. They were thrown out. <laughs> when they were thrown out of India, Britain had 24% of world manufacturing output and India had 1.8. That is the definition. The definition of colonization and intervention as we have experienced is when the Second World War, and I have seen Auschwitz, the Germans were killing six million Jews. Between 1942 and 1944, three million Bengalis were dying of a man-made famine. That is the experience of intervention that we had. And yet, and yet, what did the intervention of British do, I think, both to China as well as India? China today is ruled by intellectual European intervention. Marx is a European. There are many kinds of intervention. There's cultural intervention, there's intellectual intervention. In India, what the empires taught us, what the British taught us, was not something that they knew which was brilliant, but they taught us the meaning of our weakness. And that was the good that they do. And both India and China have emerged out of that experience, knowing that they now must pursue horizons that are not imprisoned in the past. As we uh, look around the world and you see events unfolding around you and you try and make some sense into it, a sense of it, what is it? that the world and particularly the young are looking for. I look at this hall and I see, well, the young certainly are not here, but people half our age. <laughs> what are they looking for? The horizon before the world, in my view, is the challenge of modernity. That is the meaning of Tahrir Square. Do not get fooled by Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is taking the first advantages of a new atmosphere of this urge for freedom because for 40 years when all the great secularists and all the great liberals were supporting the despotism of Mubarak, it was the mosque which was the only source of opposition. So the first gains will go, but not the second gains. Because the second gains will be determined by the idea of modernity. Modernity is a very good word to use. It's very nice to use it. It means everything to everyone. Trust me, modernity is not wearing a bra uh, you know, at the beach. It's something far more complex than that. Therefore, with all apologies to any Frenchman who might be sitting here. <laughs> which is, That's how the French define. If you're nude, you're modern. If you wear some cloth, you're barbaric. 
So modernity is not that. Modernity for me, and I come from a nation, when I, I was glad to be quoted in the way. So what is the idea of India? The idea of India represents, basically defines the four pillars of modernity. One, a modern nation must be a democratic nation. What is democracy? Democracy is not just elections. Democracy is the right not only to speak wisely every day, but also to speak rubbish every day. <laughs> Democracy is adult franchise. India gave women the vote in 47-52, just two, uh, the same time as the French did. Democracy is not giving the vote to 11% of the population, a small club, which may or may not choose Emily as its next representative. Democracy means asking her to be voted in by everyone. Number two, they cannot have a modern nation without secularism. Secularism for us is not this division of church and state. It is basically freedom of every faith, irrespective of your numbers, equality of every faith. I am an Indian Muslim, proud to be both. I don't feel less of an equal citizen in my country because the Muslims are only 14%. In that sense, China may be a successful nation, but it is not a modern nation. It has to go two steps forward before it reaches modernity. Number three, a modern nation must have gender equality. Without gender equality, you cannot be modern. This is one of the great weaknesses. When I again go back to Tahrir Square and I see women coming out in these numbers, intervention does more harm than good. <laughs> 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 and when I see that, I realize that this is an urge towards gender equality. But since, thankfully, I do not have time for the rest of my elaborate thesis <laughs> on, 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 uh, on what we should all become, and hopefully will we all become with some amount of luck, let me just say, I'm sitting, I'm standing here in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a product of foreign intervention. It's up to you to decide whether Hong Kong is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> on, that, on that, ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, now we come to the fun part of this evening. Your questions to drive this debate. I will be taking questions in groups of two or three and um, putting them before our panelists. Okay, I think there's David. Microphones coming around. Thanks. Emily, I think you may have confused the issue a bit by speaking so passionately about Myanmar because there's intervention and there's intervention. I think it's one thing to say countries can boycott nations they don't approve of or if they find some egregious human rights violation, they put all sorts of sanctions on. But it's another thing to go and uh, support regime change, where which... I tend to agree with Professor Zhang, often as a product or a result of a national self-interest. What would you say to that? Emily, you want to respond? Well, I think what Aung San Suu Kyi has been calling for is intervention. Maybe she did not explicitly ask for a regime change, but if you have harsh economic sanctions and other measures which work powerfully, the regime may fall. 
Now, we hope there are going to be democratic elections. We hope she may become the next prime minister. If that happens, there is regime change. And if there are mass atrocities taking place in a country or a city, and the people crying out for international help, then, okay, you may impose sanctions, but if there is a consensus to go in and help to bring about a regime change, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, of course, at the end of the day, as I said earlier, I said, ask the people. Do the people want it? And, uh, and in some countries, the people are quite united. In others, they are divided. That makes the situation complex and difficult. But if we go back to what Kovi Anand and other people at the UN said, times have changed, maybe because we don't have imperialism anymore, but there is a duty on the international community to intervene when you see mass atrocities taking place, particularly when you see many of the people who are suffering, they are crying out for help. And I think many of those people would appreciate a regime change. Professor Zhang, do you want to add to that point? Well, uh, I think we have to be a bit cautious. Even in the case of uh, Syria, we all know the, the Assad regime is of Assad himself, a dictator. But on the other hand, I checked on the website last night, you know, the survey conducted by uh, Qatari Research Institute turned out that 55% of population prefer the regime staying there. And also you have to check this uh, report uh, offered by, presented by Arab League Observe Mission, yeah, which was, again, controversial. The report actually gave the story of the two sides, both sides, the government and opposition, committed crimes of killing many civilians. So you have this balanced picture, we have a better idea whether we should apply sanction or whatever, and how to do it. Thank you. Okay, more questions. Here in the front, and then we'll go to the back too. Thanks. Uh, my question is mainly for uh, Mr. Akbar. I'm just, uh, I, I appreciate how you define modernity, and I agree with the definition. What I did not understand or get from what you said was, how does foreign intervention actually help a nation modernize? And I think that's really where I, I'm one of the I don't knows at the beginning, and as the debate progressed, I think I'm more on the for side, because nations really need to be built from within. And that is something that we have heard from those who are, who are proposing the motion, but not so much on about who are opposing the motion. Um, I would argue that the Arab Spring may have happened earlier if there had not been silent foreign intervention keeping the despots, the Arab despots, in power. Maybe Mubarak would have been toppled earlier. I would argue that uh, the pendulum would not have swung so far to the right in Iran had the Shah of Iran not been kept in power against the people's will. And perhaps today the pendulum would swing farther to the left if the USA and Israel would stop threatening Iran with uh, strikes at their nuclear at their supposed nuclear facility. And also talking about Pakistan... Can you, sorry, can you wrap it up with a question, please? Yes, yeah, sorry. And I, just the last one, since India and Pakistan kept coming up also. Maybe the idea of India is very strong in India because India developed in a very insular economic and social and political model, unlike Pakistan, which constantly had military governments propped up by um, foreign support. So just a few examples there. 
Okay, next question before we go on. Let's go to the back, please. Um, oh, go ahead, the gentleman with the mi- microphone. Go yes, my, my question is for, those, for, for the two of you who are against the motion. And I'd like to know how you decide whose kids go off to die to, to enforce the intervention. And the second part of the question is, what do you do when the intervening nation isn't really so hot about the idea of intervening? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my question is mainly directed at the proposition bench, especially uh, Dr. Ludwak. Um, in your speech and in the answer to a previous question, you seem to have conceded quite a lot of the principles of um, the opposition bench in saying that sovereignty can be eroded and talking about how it's actually a matter of self-confidence in going on with the intervention. Doesn't that actually imply that if people have the will to keep on going, as we've seen in cases such as East Timor, doesn't that actually kind of concede the opposition's argument that it is actually a good thing at the end of the day if you have the will to carry on? And I'd also like to point out that actually in... Cambodia, we did see the Vietnamese being provoked into intervening, and they actually had the will to go in, get rid of the Khmer Rouge, and we see Cambodia on a much better track right now. So I'd like to, um, to hear a response on some of those issues. Thanks. Okay, yeah, let's start. Because it was addressed to, um, to you, Edward. Let, well, why don't you start with the that? Khmer Rouge, the Khmer Rouge massacred a million people, but they had the Chinese alliance. The Chinese supported the Khmer Rouge. The Vietnamese intervened because the Vietnamese at that point were aligned with the Soviet Union against China to knock off the pro, the, in fact, China-affiliated Khmer Rouge. That's why they intervened. They intervened actually after the massacre took place. That is when the Chinese army invaded Vietnam to stop them from taking over the Cambodia, right? This has nothing to do with stopping a massacre. Now, in regard to staying for years and the self-confidence thereof, the reason they don't stay for years is because you don't have legitimacy for staying for years. But the British came, and they were going to stay in India a couple of thousand years, right? And like the Romans, they moved in in the province. They started slowly building a bridge, and they, you know, people would go up to the Roman legionnaires and say, what are you doing with the building this bridge? Say, well, it takes us four years to build this gigantic bridge that tourists can still see in France. But since we're going to stay here 400 years, why not? If you're not, if you need to have international legitimacy. You have to have a return for something that Mr. Akbar no doubt would welcome, a return to full-fledged colonialism, you know, with the plumed heads and the whole thing, arriving in Iraq, saying, we're going to stay here 200 years until you will really learn what democracy is. And you will accept the rights of individuals, accept the rights of minorities to live with among them, not drive them out. And you will understand that when you win an election, it doesn't mean you get all the power, that the majority rules with the consent of the minority, and citizens have individual rights in any case. So the government is so they, there is no legitimacy, there is no acceptance for that, and therefore, there, even if the will to do it, it would not be there. Okay, um, I was getting nudged, but can we could we have two like last group of questions, and then we're going to move on. Uh, the debate so far has focused on humanitarian and military intervention. 
Um, I'm interested in what the panel think about commercial intervention and particularly China's trading arrangements in Africa. Um, one thinks of Sudan. And I'd be very interested to hear what Professor Zhang has to say about that. I always say uh, the following. If you want to know about uh, China's presence in Africa, you should first of all ask the African people. From all the surveys I've collected, you can check, for instance, the website of PWPO. Most Africans appreciate the Chinese presence, and they believe that somehow Africa was ignored and forgotten. All of a sudden, China came in. And of course, China has its share of problems with other countries, but on the whole, the Chinese presence, investment, and building of infrastructure were received. And also, there is a key difference between the Chinese approach with Western approach. Because in the Chinese political narrative, fighting poverty is number one human rights. It's almost like Red Cross approach to whatever conflicts. Whatever regions, whatever, it's a Chinese commitment to fighting poverty in every country. We do it. No country can use any excuse, corruption or whatever, uh, as a pretext not to help Africa fighting poverty. So that's my uh, quickly, uh, just slightly extrapolating from my uh, argument because I want to come back to the point raised by uh, Emily. Uh, that is, I always think, you know, when you talk about human rights, even in China, we should, of course, first of all, ask Chinese. You can do a very simple survey. You can ask any Chinese you meet in Beijing, Shanghai, anywhere in China, in Europe, in Hong Kong, in the United States. I give very conservative estimates. Most Chinese believe their human rights are much better than any time in history. And this is very important. It's common sense, you know. You can also double-check all the surveys done by PW, by Gallup, by Columbia University, by Taiwan University, of course, by many Chinese institutions. The approval rate of Chinese central government is much higher, always, than the Western governments, than Obama regime in the United States or other regions in, in, in uh, government uh, in Europe. So it's, again, it's a common-sense approach. Okay, you ask ordinary people, you all know the result. Well, yeah. Um, I don't think we can have that go by without a response from Emily. <laughs> I, think, I think if the Chinese government's approval rating is so high, and it's not difficult to be higher than Obama, of course, <laughs> then why don't they let the people choose? The <laughs> so they should, they should be very confident that if they open the electoral process up, and let the people elect. Of course, they have to have a free media and to allow other political parties to be formed. You know, when I was in Berlin last September, I was introduced as a member of the Democratic Party of China. I said, wait a minute, no. <laughs> I'm a member of the Democratic Party of Hong Kong. There is a Democratic Party of China, but all their members are either in jail or in exile. So if the government is so popular, why do they have to suppress the people like that, my dear friend? And although I'm not allowed to travel to mainland China, I, I can speak to some Chinese people and wearing my hat as vice chair of the human rights lawyer, China Human Rights Lawyers Concern Group. I do manage to speak to some of these 
very, very courageous human rights lawyers. There are 200,000 lawyers in China, or even more, but only 100 human rights lawyers. These people could have become multi-billionaires overnight if they just go into commercial ventures, but they choose to help the downtrodden in mainland China, and we formed a group in Hong Kong to support them, and I often ask them, what do the Chinese people want? And the reply is quite different from what Professor Zhang told us. So my dear friends, the best thing is, you have many Chinese friends. You ask them. Some may say they don't want democracy, but they want freedoms. When they are here, they love it. Hong Kong is so free and so secure. So, <laughs> my dear friend, if, China, if the Chinese government is so confident, let us have elections in mainland China and see if the Communist Party will win. Okay. Uh, okay, you, you, can, you can in just a second. God, it's really heating up here just as we're running out of time. Actually, this is a misreading of the Chinese political system and Chinese political culture. We have a different system which build on Chinese traditional civilization. It's very competitive. I always make this analogy. I said, if you look at the selection process, the Chinese political reform is, uh, can be summarized as in a simple way. I call it selection plus some form of election, which is very competitive. And I think this selection plus election can work better than Western select election. Yeah. I'll give you an example. You know, if you look at the selection process of the nine members of the Chinese political bureau, uh, the key decision makers, two terms as number one in the province, each Chinese province, five European states, six states, it's by no means easy. So with this standard and system in place, we can never have a low-caliber guy like George W. Bush. It's way below the Chinese system, okay. the Chinese standard. We have your results. Okay, to remind you how you debated pre-arguments, 44% uh, of you were for, 46 were against, and 10% were undecided. Well, after this debate... 21% of you are for, 70% against, 9% undecided. So we congratulate you. <laughs> All right, that, um, that concludes um, a very, very interesting and timely debate. Just, um, again, thank you very much, Deutsche Bank, and um, thank you to the Intelligence Squared staff, um, to Jana Peel for bringing this to us, to Alex Senna, to Stephanie Poon, uh, for, and Sue Mae Thompson um, for, for this debate tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. 
I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.